corner. We are going to be your teachers for the study. We're going to alternate weeks, and we both have written the homework for the weeks that we're going to be teaching. So we've worked really hard over the last several months to put this together. So we really hope and pray that you guys are going to be um, blessed and that God is going to move through this study. I want to start um, just by sharing why we do a women's Bible study at all. Um, a while back, I was watching an interview on some like um, online video, and it was kind of like a really well-known theologian, and he was interviewing Jen Wilkin, which if you don't know who she is, she's kind of like the most popular woman teacher in Bible, like in you know the church world at this time. And he was trying to give her a compliment, and he said, yeah, you know, you're, you're really sharp. Like, you really know your theology really well. And she's like, thank you. And then he goes, and I don't just mean for a woman. I mean, like, even against men, you're really sharp and know your Bible. And my jaw dropped because this was like a well-known, respected theologian. And you could tell that she was just trying to be gracious. And she just goes, thank you. But I think that that just is such an evidence that, unfortunately, we live in a culture where there are a lot of stereotypes about women in churches, right? Like, and I don't know if you've experienced this in your church history before, but I know I have in churches I've been a part of that there's kind of this stereotypical women's ministry. And a lot of time they're known for maybe being a little bit emotion-driven and maybe surface level and more about connecting women. And I think that that is maybe a product of some of these stereotypes that have maybe become self-perpetuating. I have known since the time we planted this church that I wanted to raise the bar for women. And I've been a part of churches that had a high bar for women within the church. And there is just something about being at a church where women are truly living out their potential as just followers of Christ who are laying down their life for just the gospel and who are laboring alongside our brothers in Christ. And it's a beautiful thing. And I want Providence Road to be a place that tears down those stereotypes I want a high bar for women in our church, and I want that to be evident when people come and visit us here. I don't want this to be a place where people would say, like, wow, like, you've got some sharp women, you know. But I want it to be like we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, and we all are running the race, and we know our Bibles. That's a part of it. That's a big, important piece of the puzzle because there's a lot commanded of us as disciples of Jesus Christ, and how are we going to be able to live it out if we don't know what the Bible says that we are supposed to be doing, okay? So when I have you guys all come in together for these women's Bible studies, you guys are doing this, yes, because it'll benefit you, but you're also helping us to create a culture in our church that has a high bar for women because our Bible studies, if you've done one before, you know that they're not soft and fluffy. They're hard. We usually lose a lot of people by the end because we kind of ask a lot of you guys in really digging into the text and doing a lot of homework, and we go pretty deep. And I know that for those of you guys who stick with it, it's going to really bless you, and it's going to help you to be a part of creating something bigger, a bigger culture to kind of fight some of these stereotypes about women. So that's kind of part of why I like to do these Bible studies for women. Um, I also want to just share for this Bible study what some of my goals are before we kind of start. My goals are typically the same every time, other than there's a slight difference near the end. But every time, obviously, my first goal is that you're going to live here, leave here with a really good and deep and rich understanding of the books of First and Second Thessalonians. That's a given. I want you to know these books really well as we study them. But also, my second goal is always that I hope you leave here with some tools that you feel equipped that you can then take when you study other books of the Bible on your own, okay? Because... I don't want you to leave here and say, wow, that was such a great Bible study. I can't wait to do another Bible study. I want you instead to leave here and say, wow, that was such a great Bible study. And now I feel a little bit more equipped to open my Bible on my own and use some of these tools and apply them and be able to access the scripture in a deeper way. 
And then finally, with every Bible study, I feel like because I talk so much about Bible study tools and there's so many different ways that you can study the Bible and methods you can use, and I feel like each book tends to lend itself to really practicing a different element of study or a different tool. And so each time, with whatever that book is, um, I kind of try to figure out what does this book really, what will this book help us practice? Now, for the books of First and Second Thessalonians, we are going to be encountering some really confusing scriptures about the end times, okay? Some scriptures about, like, the return of Christ that we are going to look at and we're going to be like, what in the world? This is so confusing. And I think that this is a great opportunity for us to really practice the skill of being this able to step back and say, wow, this is a confusing text. How can I fill in the gaps of what I don't understand about this text by looking at what the entirety of scripture says about this topic? Like, we haven't done a lot of just random cross-referencing in our studies in the past. And we've even had people say, like, I really appreciate that you don't just give us a bunch of cross-references for no reason just to fill time. Like, everything we do, we try to make it purposeful. But this time is going to be one of those times that we're going to show you this is a time that it's really appropriate to cross-reference and help fill in some gaps and be able to see the bigger picture so that we can make sense of a confusing text. So that's one of my goals is that I want us to get better at that specific skill this time. And so each study, whenever you come back, you're going to gain another skill that I think you're going to learn from. And so I hope that that is helpful for you. So those are my goals. I'm going to go ahead and open us up in prayer, and then I'll kind of jump into maybe some of our study methods, and we're going to start practicing some of these study methods. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for bringing us all here tonight. I know there are so many things um, kind of pulling our attention in every direction, so many great ways we could be spending our time, and I thank you that you have impressed upon all of us in this room that this is something that is worth spending our time on. I pray that you would show up tonight. I pray that you would be moving in a powerful way and that you would be revealing things to us about your word and helping us to um, to really just encounter you and to, to be moved by your spirit, Lord, as we come. So God, I pray that you would be leading this, you would be guiding this, and that you would um, just help everybody here um, just encounter you in some way tonight. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. I'm going to start with a thing that I know a lot of you guys who have done the study before, this is going to be really familiar. So if you have done a lot of these studies, and this is a part that you're like, I already know this, I'm going to tune it out, I want to challenge you to think, okay, I might know this, but do I know how to teach it to somebody else, okay? So don't tune it out just because you've heard it, but think, could I explain this well to somebody else, okay? So push yourself a little bit more, don't tune me out here. I'm going to start by going over the study method that kind of forms the backbone of all the studies that we write here. This is a method me and Madison have both been taught. We didn't create this. We've been to lots of conferences that help women teachers. And this method, I don't know who created it, but it's simple, it's effective, and we love it. And this is called the CIA method. So in your workbook, there are pages for notes. So feel free to open up to your notes page. This is something I would love for you to write down. CIA. So I'm going to walk you through what these stand for. When you're looking at a text and when you're reading the Bible, the first step that you want to do is you want to do a lot of work to make sure that you have a really good and thorough comprehension of the text. So the C is for comprehension, and that's basically just asking the question, what does the text say? Okay. Now this seems straightforward, but if you've spent very much time in the Bible, you'll know that oftentimes it is not. There are some times that you open the Bible and you're like, okay, I understand what it's saying here. And there's some times that you're like, I have no idea what this is saying, okay? But even on those times when it seems straightforward, there's always work we can do to expand our comprehension. Things like understanding the context, 
asking why did this come before and after it? Like, what is, what is really being said here? Is there something about the original language that maybe I'm missing? So there's always extra work we can do in our study habits to help us to answer the question, what is the text really saying? So that's step one. The next step is the I, and that stands for interpretation. And that's asking the question, what does the text mean? So once you have a thorough and complete and full understanding of what the text is saying, then you can say, well, what does that mean? And I'm going to walk you through an example of this here in a second. And then finally, at the very end, we have the A, which stands for application. And that stands for, that means, how should the text change me? Now, we tend to love application, okay? A lot of people, we like to come to a text, and the first thing that we ask is, what does this mean for me? How, should I, how would I apply this to my life? Because let's be honest, we really like to ask the questions that are about ourselves, right? Well, when we do this, when we go straight to application, we run the risk of either having a very shallow application at best, or at worst, just completely misapplying the text, okay? So we want to make sure that we help you guys have really good study habits so that when we get to the application part that we love so much, that it's meaningful and it's deep and it's rich and it's not surface level and it's not inaccurate, okay? So just to give you a quick rundown of what this could look like in a very simple step-by-step um, -step method, think about the story in Luke where Jesus raises a little girl from the dead. We've probably all heard this story. So if we were going to go through these steps, the comprehension level, we would say things like, well, what is the text saying? It's saying a child died. That's something that the text clearly says. It says that Jesus took her hand and said, child, arise. It says that then she came back to life. So those are three simple things that the text said. If I'm then going to move to the interpretation step, I would say, well, what does that mean? Well, that means Jesus is pretty powerful, right? Like the text had never said Jesus is powerful, but I can take that meaning when I read that he raised somebody from the dead. It could mean, I could interpret that to say Jesus is the source of life. I could interpret that to mean she was dependent on him for her life, okay? So those are all meanings that I drew from the text because I knew what it said. And then finally, my application. If I had just read that text and said, oh, a child died and Jesus raised her from the dead, how would I apply this to my life? I might say, well, gosh, maybe if I have a child who dies, Jesus will raise them from the dead. Or maybe if I die, Jesus, you know, like that's not an application that the text is really meant for, right? But when I've gone through that interpretation level step, I would say, well, I know that this means that Jesus is powerful. Do I trust that Jesus has the power to meet me in my areas of need? I know that this means that Jesus is the source of true life. Do I trust him as my source of true life? I know that this means that she was dependent on him for her life. Am I aware of my own dependence on him? And those are some deeper applications that I can then examine. So do you see the, the flow? After all, we start with comprehension, move to interpretation, end with application. So hopefully it helps you understand. Um, to help you more with this, last time we did the study, we started writing it a little differently. If you kind of flip through a couple pages, you're going to notice some of these are in plain text and some of these are in bold on your questions. So what we've done is all of the questions that are just plain text, these are all going to be comprehension level questions. So they're going to be questions that you're going to be able to find the answers. There's usually going to be a correct answer and it's usually going to be somewhat straightforward and easy to find. Not always, but usually on the easier end to find. Okay. Now, the interpretation and the application questions, we have put in bold, and we have marked what it is. This is interpretation. This is application. These are going to be a little harder. 
These are gonna maybe stretch your critical thinking skills. These are, there's not, you're not gonna like this, but there's not always a right answer on the interpretation ones. And a lot of times, you guys might all have a different interpretation, and that's one of the beautiful things about coming together to discuss as a group, okay? So I know a lot of you guys, you just wanna have the right answer, you wanna know what it is, um, but we just want to stretch you to think about the right things, not necessarily always know the right answer, because even scholars don't have all the answers, and that is okay. Um, so we want you to be able to kind of see the flow. A lot of times you'll see there's a series of it comprehension questions that will then lead to an interpretation question and then lead to an application question. And we've marked those so that you can start to see how this could look when you're studying on your own, to see how the way that that flows, if that makes sense. Another reason that we have marked it like this for you is we do surveys with every Bible study and we always get the exact same feedback. You guys love the depth of our studies, and you like love how deep we go and how just rich they are. But you guys hate the homework. Like you hate how much homework there is. You always ask for less homework. You always ask for easier homework. But unfortunately, they go hand in hand. You can't get the depth if you don't do the work with the homework. So we can't take the homework away. But we have tried to help you guys out. Because if you're one of those people that is just like, I can't do it right now, this is a crazy season of life, maybe your class schedule is insane, maybe just motherhood is just really hard right now and you just don't have the time, we want to give you permission to just look at those comprehension level questions and just feel the freedom to just do those. And if that's all you can do, that's okay. You'll still at least be looking at the right things in the text and be ready to come and hear the teaching and then be able to discuss it well with other women, okay? So we kind of do that because we know that not everybody is able to do all the homework every week, but we want you to have the freedom to just focus on some of the easier questions to do and kind of indicate which ones, that it's okay if you need to skip them. <clears throat> and with all that being said, I know that there are some of you guys who are even just like, uh, I don't know if this is for me, like I'm out. I, I would rather you come, even not having done a single lick of homework all the study, okay? Still come, because there is still going to be a benefit for you to come and hear some teaching and be able to discuss with other women, okay? So don't be shamed by not being able to do the homework. We still want you here. This is still for you, okay? But if you do have the time and the bandwidth and the desire, we want you to have the opportunity to dig in further with those interpretation and application questions as well. So... Hopefully that kind of helps maybe you guys breathe easier if you're panicking a little bit about the homework or those of you guys who have been here for a while, it's just a reminder that, you know, don't let the homework be what makes you drop the class, okay? We want you here. I remember at the end of, or the beginning of the last study, typically every Bible study, not just here, but just around, across the board, you typically end up at the end with about half of what you started with. And so I told my group, I want our group to be the one that still has everybody at the end. Well, guys... We did a pretty good job in our group. I'm not going to lie. I loved my group last time. I want to extend that challenge to all of us. Let's let this be the Bible study where we all stick with it to the end. Even if we can't stick with the homework, let's just keep coming and see it all the way through because when you get to the end is when you really get the gold, okay? So stick with it, and I hope that it will be worth your while. All right. We're going to start now. We're going to start working on our comprehension of the text. And we're going to start doing it before we even like really start reading it. <clears throat> a lot of you guys, you guys know what we're about to do because we do this every time. The first exercise that I like to do before I study the book of the Bible is an exercise called reading the envelope. So that's how we're going to start. I think that you guys in your workbooks, there's a page for this. I don't know that there's going to be enough room for the notes. You can fill in on that page, but we also have two pages of notes. So feel free wherever you want to write your notes is fine. 
Um, but this is, again, an exercise that we did not create, but me and Madison have both been taught this at several conferences. This is a very popular um, exercise. And this is the idea behind it. When you get a piece of mail, it comes in an envelope, right? And on that envelope, there's a lot of information. You have who the letter is to, you have who it's from, there's a postmark that kind of tells you when it was written and like where it came from. You can kind of even tell the type of letter, like the genre, if you will, by looking at it. Like, is this a bill or is this a letter from a friend? And you kind of take in all that information and it prepares you for what you're about to read when you open the letter, okay? So like, I know when I look at a bill, my mind is gonna go into a certain frame of mind to be prepared to like pay that bill. But when I get a letter from a friend, I'm in a completely different frame of mind to read that one. So the idea behind this exercise is to take those same, you know, the information you would get on an envelope and ask those questions about this book of the Bible that'll help frame it for us so that our mind is ready to take in the information. So we're going to go and we're going to, before we even start to read the text, we're going to ask, who wrote this book? Who was it written for? Like, who was the intended audience? Like, when was it written? Um, like, what genre is this? Where does it fit into the big picture? These are some questions that we can ask so that we're ready to study it and to understand what we're about to read. Now, it would be really easy to go through these questions and have simple answers in less than five minutes. Like, who wrote it? Well, Paul and some of his companions. To who? The church at Thessalonica. And when? Well, I think people think around 50 AD. I'm done. But really, that does not tell us anything, right? Like, if we don't know who Paul is, if we don't know what was going on during that time, that is not helpful information for us, okay? Like, this is the same example I used last time, so sorry for people who were last time. But how many of you guys know about the book, The Diary of Anne Frank? If you heard of it. If you haven't heard of it, it's a diary of a girl. She was Jewish during the Holocaust, and she was hiding in an attic. Imagine if you had read that book, but you had never heard of the Holocaust. Like, you had no idea that there was such thing as World War II. And you had no idea what it meant to be Jewish during that time. That book would not make any sense. All of the depth, all of the meaning of what she was going through would be totally over your head. You would miss important things. You would misinterpret why she did the things that she did. It just wouldn't make any sense. But if I said, hey, I'm going to help you understand this. This was written by a girl named Anne Frank, and she wrote it in the 40s. Like, does that help you understand it? No, you need a rich and detailed understanding of the Holocaust and what it meant to be Jewish during that time to be able to understand and get everything out of that book, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to read the envelope for First and Second Thessalonians, and we're going to do it with as many details as possible. This might seem a lot or too heady, but like this is going to help us get that rich framework so that when we do read the text, we can read it with the right lenses and the right understanding of who these people were and what was going on during this time. So go ahead, flip to that um, envelope page of your books, and we are going to work through this together. <clears throat> We're going to start with who wrote the book and when, because I'm going to tie these together because it's just easier to explain that way, okay? Well, it's pretty widely accepted, the fact that it tells you in the letters that it's written by Paul, along with some of his companions, um, Silas and Timothy. Now, some of yours might say Sylvanus or Sylvanus. I don't know how to pronounce it, so I'm just going to say Silas. It is the same person, okay? He, he goes by both names, so there's different translations that use different names. So I'm just going to be saying Silas. Um, so Paul, Silas, and Timothy were kind of the authors of this book, Okay. Um, so who were they? Well, to kind of answer that, we're going to kind of go through the story of what happened um, after the death and resurrection of Christ to see how they kind of come into the story in the Bible, okay? So we see in the Bible the death and resurrection of Jesus happens around 30 AD. The Holy Spirit comes about 50 days later. Now, the Holy Spirit comes when Peter is preaching to a multitude that had gathered in Jerusalem 
during this time that he's preaching, like 3,000 people are baptized. And this is what creates the early church that we read about in the book of Acts, okay? So this is about 50 days after the death of Christ. From the very beginning in this early church that primarily exists in Jerusalem, there is a lot of conflict. There's a lot of persecution from the very beginning. And it escalates. It gets hot. It intensifies. And it gets to the point that people start to be killed. The very first person to be killed is the stoning of a Christian, of a man named Stephen. Okay, so he's the first Christian to die for his faith, the first martyr. Now, Paul, our author, was present at this stoning, but at the time, he was actually a Pharisee named Saul. He was not a believer, but he was a Pharisee, and at this time, he began playing a major role in persecuting the early church. And that involved hunting down Christians, looking for them, having them imprisoned. And while he might, we don't know if he actually killed any with his own hands, he was definitely responsible for the death of, of Christians as he did this, okay? So, like I said, until this time, Christianity mainly existed here in Jerusalem where this early church started when the Holy Spirit came down and when Peter preached. But this persecution intensified and it got to the point where people were being killed. And so the church had to leave Jerusalem. They scatter, okay? Now, because they have to scatter, it's harder for these people like Paul to go, or Saul at the time to go after them. So Saul starts to travel to these other places to continue to hunt down Christians. And while he is trying to find more Christians to persecute, on his way to a place called Damascus, he has a really powerful and miraculous conversion experience, and he becomes a Christian. You guys probably already know this story, but we're trying to put it all together for you. So now he's no longer who he once was. He is now Paul, and he becomes one of the most influential followers of Christ in the New Testament. So after his conversion, he stays with the disciples. He starts to proclaim Jesus. He's learning. Um, Jesus, uh, Christianity spreads and grows, and the, the persecution spreads and grows and intensifies as well. Herod starts persecuting Christians, and apostles begin to be killed, and they begin to be imprisoned. Ten years after his conversion, about 44 or 45, Paul begins doing some missionary journeys to where he primarily has been like around Jewish people. He starts doing missionary journeys to try to spread the gospel to Gentile cities, okay, primarily Gentile cities. And while he did this, he trained other people to plant churches as well. This is where Timothy and Silas come into the picture. Because after his first missionary journey, he was getting ready to go on a second one, and he needed somebody to go with him. There was kind of a falling out with the person who was supposed to go, and so he ends up deciding to take Silas with him. At the time, Silas was a leader and a teacher in that early Jerusalem church, okay? So he takes Silas, and they set out together, and on this journey, they meet Timothy. And Timothy was a follower of Christ who was really well spoken of. Paul forms this connection with him where he kind of becomes a mentor to him. They have a really special relationship that we see all throughout the New Testament. So from this time, Timothy travels with them on this missionary journey, and they go from town to town preaching the gospel and planting churches. <clears throat> now, on this second missionary journey, they travel to a place called Thessalonica. That's where we find ourselves. And you can read all about their time in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. This is so cool because we're studying the letters that he wrote to them, but in Acts chapter 17, we actually get an account of his time there. So if you want to kind of set yourself up a little bit to understand the letters, read Acts chapter 17. We're going to be sending you there a little bit in the study. So we, they come to Thessalonica, they plant a church there, but they're only able to stay for a short time, and then they have to leave because they're kind of chased out of the city. And so Paul writes these two letters, which we now know as First and Second Thessalonians, just a few months probably after being forced to leave the church there. So why is all of this important? Well, think about what it would be like to go to a place that had never heard the gospel, to plant a church there, only be there a couple of weeks or months, 
and then have to leave that church because the persecution was so intense that you were chased out of town. That church would be super vulnerable, right? As all of these churches were planted on these missionary journeys, like false teaching and persecution always seems to follow because typically missionaries, they're not there for the long haul in these missionary journeys. They're there for a short time. And so there's not these like generations of biblical like knowledge that are getting passed down. Like they have a very short time to teach and train this new church and then leave. And they're leaving them in the midst of people who for a variety of reasons, depending on the city, don't want the church to be there. Okay. So there's always going to be persecution and there's always going to be false teachings that easily creep in. So Paul would often write letters to these churches to correct the false teaching, to give encouragement during this persecution, and to teach them correct doctrine and living since he had to leave and probably couldn't complete all the teaching. So this, another thing that's cool about this letter is that this first Thessalonians letter is thought to be the oldest and first letter of all of Paul's letters in the Bible. So of all the letters that he writes to churches, people think that this is probably the first one. This is the earliest one and the oldest one. So think about early on as he starts writing these letters, how Paul might have been feeling leaving this church that he planted in this vulnerable state, knowing they're getting really intense persecution, knowing he wasn't there for that long. And then that prompts him to write this letter that's full of care and concern and warmth. Okay, So it just kind of helps you to understand maybe where he's coming from and why he wrote the way that he did. Okay, we're not stopping there. I know that that was a lot just to answer who wrote it and when, but let's move on. What about the genre and who was it written to, okay? Now, the genre is an epistle. An epistle is just a fancy word for letter. This was a letter that was written to a specific group of people for a specific reason, okay? Um, there's lots of different genres in the Bible. Some of them are historical narrative. This is basically like reading a history book. Some are wisdom literature. Some are poetry. There's lots of genres. So this one is a letter. It's an epistle. And who it was written to, we've already established it was written to the new church that Paul had planted at Thessalonica. But what do we know about Thessalonica? What would help us to understand the background there? Well, for one thing, it was pretty far away from Jerusalem. This was pretty far into his missionary journey. So if, I, if we had a map in here, which we didn't put one in this time, you would see that he traveled pretty far to get there. Um, and so remember, these are missionary journeys where he's traveling to primarily Gentile places. So he, this is a primarily Gentile city. Now, if you don't know, Gentile just means not Jewish. So he's coming here to a place where there's not a whole lot of Jewish people, but there would be a small Jewish population. And that is because about 700 years before Christ, for reasons we'll get into here in a little bit, all of the Jewish population that was in Israel and Judah was forced to leave and scatter, and they had to go far and wide to all of these Gentile places. It's something that's kind of known as the Jewish diaspora, to give you a, a big word to learn. Um, this is basically a process of scattering that lasted hundreds of years. It started hundreds of years before Christ, lasted hundreds of years after. And so all of these places you hear of Paul going, you always hear that he was preaching in the synagogue. Well, why would there be these Jewish synagogues in all these Gentile cities? It's because these cities did have small populations of Jewish people who had to scatter because of what happened hundreds of years ago. It helps you understand that the, the persecution they were facing was primarily from the Gentiles. And we'll get into that even more. So another thing to understand about that city is that just like Jerusalem, it was a part of the Roman Empire. You might have remembered that a lot of Jewish people believed that the Messiah was going to come to free them from the oppression of the Romans, right? Like these Romans were just oppressing them. They were under their rule, under their control, and they were really confused when Jesus came and didn't just wage war and like, you know, ride in on a shining horse and everything. 
Well, the Jews were not the only people who were oppressed by Rome. I don't know if you're very familiar with the Roman Empire, but it was huge. Like the area that they conquered and took over is like the size of the United States. So there was like all sorts of places that all fell under the Roman Empire that were facing the same kind of oppression and persecution as we read that the Jewish people were facing in the New Testament. And it lasted hundreds of years, the Roman Empire did. It's a, it's a crazy and insane like how long and how powerful and how big they were. And we know from what we hear the Jewish people saying about how they are so desperate for a Messiah to free them from this Roman oppression that it probably was not super great to be under Roman rule. But what's really important to understand about Thessalonica is that, yes, they were under the Roman Empire. They were part of the you know, territories that were taken over by the Romans. However, they enjoyed a different status than most under other cities that were under Roman rule. They were essentially what was considered a free city. So, yeah, they were under Roman rule, but they were allowed to have their own money. They were allowed to have their own government. They were allowed to have their own education system where they could educate their kids according to their own customs, how they saw fit. They didn't have to pay tribute to Rome. They didn't have to garrison Roman troops within their walls. Like This was huge, okay? This was a really big deal for them to have this status under the Roman rule. This was a huge deal that not many places enjoyed, okay? Not many places got to have this status. It was reserved only for cities that had shown incredible loyalty to the interests of Rome. They had kind of gone above and beyond to really serve Rome, serve their interests. It's basically like they're saying, you know, like, look at what all we've done. And in return, they got to reap these benefits. So in Thessalonica, they had this autonomy and this financial freedom for Rome, and they would go to great lengths to protect that freedom, okay? So think about the implications of this to Paul and his companions. Thessalonica enjoyed these freedoms because they support Rome above all, and they promote Caesar's authority. So for Paul to then come in and start telling the citizens there that, hey, guys, there's another king, a greater king. His name is Jesus. Well, that was certainly going to threaten their loyalty to Rome. Imagine if a Roman citizen heard Oh my goodness, all the men and all the people in Thessalonica, they're following some other king now. They're not being loyal to Caesar. So, yeah, there wasn't this huge number of Jewish people there that were angry for religious reasons, but there was a huge number of Gentiles that did not want to lose their freedom under Roman rule if they suddenly started supporting a king other than Caesar. So they had a whole lot to lose here, okay? So it's not surprising that when the church comes along and starts to spread the news that there is another king, that the opposition and the persecution was fierce because there was so much on the line for these Gentiles who did not want to lose the special status that they had under Roman rule. Okay, so I hope that that gives you some clarity about why this person, I know a lot of times I read this and I'm like, why is everybody so mad everywhere, like, just because of Jesus? Like, why can't they just be okay with people believing something different? But a lot of times it's more complex than that. And the persecution is not the same everywhere they went. So that kind of explains why in Thessalonica it was so intense. All right, we've covered who wrote it. We've covered when it was written, the genre, the audience. Let's talk about the greater gospel narrative. Because unfortunately, this is one of those steps that I think gets missed all too often. And I think what's happened is that we have churches full of people who know a lot of individual stories, but not a lot of understanding of how all these stories fit together. And it can be really helpful to always have the habit of reminding yourself where in the story, where in the big picture does it all fit in, and to continue adding to our gaps. Like, have you guys ever seen those detective shows? And they have, like, a big wall, like somebody in their house who's, like, kind of obsessed 
And they'll be putting, like, maps and photographs and Post-it notes, and they put little thumbtacks and pins, and then there's little strings that connect everything together, and it's how they kind of make sense of it all, right? One, I feel like for me, that's the best way that I can picture whenever I'm trying to study a new book of the Bible is I picture that I'm adding to my little detective wall where I'm trying to figure out how does all of this fit together? What are the strings that lead this text to all the other texts that I have read? Because it is all so much more connected than I think that we often realize. So this is such an important step. I'm going to be going through some stuff that you probably know a lot of this, but it might be helpful for you to hear how it all fits together to kind of give us a more of a framework, maybe fill in some gaps, maybe you know it all, maybe you don't. So I know we have a range of people in here. So where does it fit into the overarching biblical narrative? Well, you guys probably know that the Bible is divided into the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, God forms a covenant with his people. And if you did the Hosea study, you'll remember that this was a conditional covenant. So it wasn't like a, this is a covenant for all time, no matter what kind of covenant. It was a like, hey, if you are faithful to the terms of the covenant, if you worship me above all else, then I will protect you and bring you prosperity. This was a, it depended on the conditions that Israel would be faithful to God. If you've done any Bible studies on the Old Testament with us, you will know that Israel is terrible at being faithful to the covenant. They not, they're horrible. Like, they never obey it. They are unfaithful time and time again. They're constantly worshiping other gods. They're constantly turning to false idols. And so it gets to the point that finally, God, he's patient for hundreds of years with them. And he finally gets to the point where he says, okay, enough. Like, you have broken this covenant for hundreds of years. Your hearts are so far from me that I am finally to the point that I'm going to enact the terms of the covenant. So this isn't like God just being like, this covenant's over. But like God was clear from the beginning, this is the terms. If you're not faithful, this covenant's going to end. They're not faithful for hundreds of years. And guess what? God eventually gets to the point where the covenant has to end. So this covenant is no longer in place anymore. Well, shortly after that, so they lose this covenant with God. Shortly after that, they're going to lose the land that God gave them. He led them into that land full of milk and honey, that promised land. So after that covenant is gone, that land at that point is the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, shortly after the covenant is over, then the Assyrians come and invade Israel, and all of the Jewish people in Israel are forced to start to scatter to all these other places. This is that diaspora we were talking about earlier, where the Jewish population has to then flee and get spread out all over. A few hundred years after that, the Babylonians come and invade the southern kingdom of Judah, and the same thing happens there. They all have to flee and scatter, okay? So now, no longer do they have their covenant, they also no longer have their land, and they are a scattered people living in little communities among all these Gentile places. Now, eventually, some Jewish people are able to return to Jerusalem and a couple of other key cities. There's kind of a couple of different cities that are kind of hubs for the Jewish community, Jewish culture. But for the most part, they are very scattered at the time of Christ. So a long time after this covenant ends, the Jewish people are scattered um, and, you know, the land is lost. Then God sends his son, Jesus, to make way for a new covenant. And now we're coming into the New Testament. Jesus fulfills the requirements of the Old Covenant perfectly, and he makes a way for anyone to enter into a new covenant with God. This is a completely different kind of covenant than the Jewish people would have ever heard of or been familiar with. It was so different than the one that they were used to, okay? It's not conditional like the old one. It cannot be broken. So now the death of Christ has happened, the Holy Spirit has come, and we have all these new Christians that are coming in this new covenant. So think about the culture that they are trying to figure this Christianity thing out into, okay? They're typically surrounded by a combination of either Jewish people who are still clinging to the old covenant, still trying to hold those rules, even though that covenant is no longer what they are bound to, and 
a lot of Gentiles that they are now living amongst who, worship, amongst who worship other gods and don't believe the same things. And that would have been a really confusing situation for all these new Christians and these new churches to find themselves in. You've got a lot of different opposing things on both sides here, okay? And that's why there's always so much persecution, so much opposition, and there's so many letters or epistles written to these new churches to help them be able to navigate this new and radically different kind of covenant that they had never experienced before. So I hope that that's helpful. Again, I know I've told you a lot of things that you kind of knew most of that already, but I hope it helped frame it in a little way that makes it a little bit more understand, easier to understand the big picture. So that is our reading the envelope. I know that was a lot of information. And guys, we're not done. We have two more exercises, but that was the longest one, I promise. Um, the next thing I like to do is go ahead and flip to the page about the outline. This is another really helpful tool, especially with a shorter book. Um, is if after you read the envelope, if you want to just read it in one setting, we're not going to do that right now, but I've kind of done it for you. And what I like to do is I like to kind of do a very short outline. And I use the word outline very loosely. Like if you read a commentary, they have very in-depth outlines. And every outline that you look at is going to be slightly different. There's not like a one correct outline. But it's basically just these are the chunks that it seem like go together. And then it seems like he has a shift of thought or a shift of purpose. And here's the next chunk and how it fits together. And it kind of helps to give you a framework. I like to be able to look at my outline and see on one page like, oh, this is kind of what this whole book is going to do for me here. Like it looks like he's going to do some encouraging and then it looks like he's going to do some rebuke or some, you know, like to, to give them some theology. Like it helps me to see that whole letter in one page just briefly like what's happening so then I can kind of understand what is the purpose of this letter? Well, I can kind of tell. It seems like he's trying to encourage them and do some other things. And then it helps as I'm interpreting when I keep in mind the purpose of the letter. It helps to make sure I'm not interpreting it incorrectly. So I'm basically just going to tell you the chunks that made sense to me, and I'm going to give you a simple outline. But I encourage you to try to do this on your own next time you study something for yourself. So I'm going to give you a very simple, loose outline of these two books. When you look at 1 Thessalonians, it's kind of broken into two halves. The first three chapters are basically a whole lot of encouragement, okay? He's going to greet them, and he's going to give them a ton of encouragement. Because remember, they need it. They are facing some very big persecution, okay? The second half, chapters 4 through 5, he's going to kind of switch from encouraging them to giving them some instructions and telling them how they should live. So like kind of exhortation. So instructions, exhortation, how to live, some theology. Okay, so he's going to shift into that in, this, in the second half. Now I've kind of broken it down a little further for you. So if you want to go back to the first half, the, ex the encouragement chapters, that first little chunk, 1, 1 through 2, 16, he basically is going to talk a lot about how he's so thankful at all of the evidence he's going to, that he sees that their faith is genuine, okay? So he's saying, look at all the things you're doing. That tells me your faith is genuine, okay? So that's the first chunk, the evidence of their genuine faith. The second chunk, 2.17 through 3.10, he's going to kind of go into an explanation of why they had to leave so quickly and why he's sending Timothy back to them, okay? Because there's probably some people there who were like, why did, why did he leave? Like, does he, you know, I mean, there could have been a lot of questions that came up. And so he's going to give an explanation of why. And then he's going to end this first half, three, um, 11 through 13, with just a prayer to close the section. He's going to pray for them and close out this section before shifting thoughts. Then we get to chapters 4 through 5, which is kind of more of the instruction half of the letter and telling them how to live. That first chunk, chapter 4, 1 through 12, that's going to be a lot of him encouraging them to love one another, and he's going to do that by telling them specific things they should be doing, specifically abstaining from sexual immorality and working hard. 
So basically it all falls under the umbrella of love one another by doing these things. Then 413 through 511, he's going to give a lot of theological instruction on the second coming of Christ, okay, the end times. I kind of mentioned, this is kind of one of the books of the Bible that's really known for having a whole lot about Jesus coming back, okay? And um, yeah, it's going to get fun, guys. I'm I'm excited to get into it. I promise it's not going to get weird in here, okay? Um, 5, 12 through 22 is more general instruction on how to love one another and how they should live. And then he closes up this section the same way he closed the first section, just prayer for them to close the letter and to close that section. So that's going to be a very simple outline of the first um, book, the first letter. The second letter is a lot shorter. And so we just kind of did it chapter by chapter. The first chapter is basically going to be a lot of greeting and encouragements as they're suffering and being persecuted. So he's going to encourage them a lot in their suffering in that first chapter of the, the second book. Chapter 2, the main focus is going to be more clarification about Jesus coming back. Like, it's confusing. He had to come back and address it some more because they still don't understand. Okay? And then chapter 3, the main focus is just kind of praying for one another and some final instructions on how to live. So that's your blueprint. That's your map. That's kind of where we're going to go throughout the whole study. And last, before we end, I want to briefly touch on the idea of themes. So in other words, what are the topics or the subjects, or the messages that are central in these letters. <clears throat> now, keep in mind, there's going to be a lot more than these three. Um, throughout, the, throughout the study, I want you to practice identifying if you see a theme come up, something that kind of keeps on coming up that seems central to the letter. But I'm really excited about the themes that we are going to focus on. Um, if you'll see on page three of week one, I've got three themes listed. Um, and Paul is really known for these three themes. Like, they're kind of his thing. He kind of brings them up a lot in a lot of his letters. He's really known for them. And so it's kind of cool to see how in his earliest letter, what we think is the earliest one he wrote, to see how he talks about all three of these things. I think it's a really beautiful thing. But what I'm really excited about is to really um, to see these three themes with all the depth and the richness that they are meant to carry. Because think about when we think faith, hope, and love. I didn't, oh yeah, on your page it'll say faith, hope, and love are the themes. Where do we see that a lot? Like where do we tend to see these three themes pop up? I think a lot of like my Instagram feed. You'll get these little like Bible quotes with like little flowers around them, faith, hope, and love, or on my t-shirt, or on my coffee mug, or on the little like word plaque on my wall. That's a very popular one, faith, hope, and love. We hear it all the time, right? So when you see that pop up in your feed, or when you see that on your friend's wall, what comes, what do you think about? What does it stir up within you? Probably something along the lines of, oh, that's cute, or oh, how pretty, or maybe you're having a really bad day when it pops up in your feed, and you're like, oh, I really needed that. Okay, move on. You know, like, it's, it rings so hollow to us because it's so familiar, right? We have this Christian culture where we take these things and we say them over and over and over again without ever addressing the meaning behind them, and pretty soon the words start to ring shallow or even meaningless to us in our ears. We maybe feel them as just a good message that gives us the warm fuzzies, Right? I guarantee you that the church in Thessalonica would not have heard these ideas of faith, hope, and love and been like, oh, that's cute. Like, that would not have been their response. They were in such a hard situation, and they were clinging to these things that Paul was teaching them for their very, like, to take their next step, you guys. These meant so much to them. So I really hope that during the study that we can clarify the meaning of these words and show you the incredibly challenging and difficult ways that these themes should really be shaping our lives, okay? We're going to try to bring back the depth that tends to get lost in the shallow familiarity that our culture likes to create, okay? So I'm going to give you a quick 
rundown of each of these themes because I want you to have eyes for it. I don't want you to miss it when we're studying these books. Okay, we're going to go into way more depth than all of these, but I just want you to be ready and primed for it. Okay, so let's start with faith. <clears throat> when we're going through a hard time, how many of you guys hear somebody say things like, just have faith, right? Is that helpful to us? No, it kind of means something like, hey, it's all going to work out. Just have faith. It rings shallow, and it's usually unhelpful. But here in this letter, we're going to see Paul address some major suffering that the church is going through and the fact that they are being persecuted by the culture around them. And he's going to encourage them by reminding them, hey, the way that you're responding to the suffering is evidence of your faith being genuine because faith is proven by trials and testing. Paul's going to point out a lot of things that they're doing that are hard, that take a lot of effort, and say, guys, this is evidence that your faith is true. And that's why he calls it a work of faith, because it's hard and it takes a whole lot of effort, the things that they are walking through. It is not easy to walk through suffering well, but it is the evidence that their faith is genuine. That means a whole lot more than what we're used to, right? What about hope? Paul addresses in both letters a lot of detail about the second coming of Christ which is where their hope should be while they're facing these persecutions and this suffering. He's not telling them, hey, just have hope, because if you're a Christian, things are going to work out all good for you, or as long as you read your Bible and go to church, you're going to have a happy life. It's going to go well. You know, it's not, that's not what he's saying at all. He is pointing their hope to a future, long-term hope that's going to come when Jesus returns, and that's why he calls it a perseverance of hope. Because it's something that they're to cling to when they feel like they can't go on anymore. And finally, love. Again, to us, we love to say love. It's like our feel-good word, right? But here, Paul is giving them a lot of instructions on how to live. He's telling them things like abstain from sexual immorality, work hard at your jobs, don't be idle. And he always surrounds all these instructions with the framework of loving one another, okay? He is challenging them, hey, to love one another requires something of you. It requires self-sacrifice. It requires hard work. That's why he calls it the labor of love. This isn't just a feel-good feeling. It is hard, and it requires sacrifice, and it takes something from us, okay? Guys, remember at the beginning, we talked about how much we love application, right? We want to jump straight to the application, and that I just want to really drive in the home that the application, it really does need to come last because all of these themes, they, we're going to get that depth and the richness of that application if we do the hard work of comprehending the text well and interpreting it accurately. That's what's going to bring about the themes the way that Paul intended them. That's how we're going to be able to learn them in a way that just rocks us to our core is if we do the work of the, of the um, comprehension interpretation. Everything I said tonight probably feels super heady, right? We learned a lot of information. Some of you guys might have tuned me out a long time ago. Like, this was all very, very heady. But guys, stick with it because that's just the first step. And if you stick with the study to the end, you're going to see how all that head knowledge is going to progress to some really deep interpretation. And then finally, some really rich application that should mean a lot more than if we were to just jump straight to application from the beginning, okay? So do the work and see how at the end of the study, your application is going to become more deep and more impactful. That is the reward for all of your hard work. So stick with it. You can do this. I know it. You've got this. Um, let's be the study that sticks with it to the end, okay? I know I want to see all of your faces here on the last week, okay? All right. 
I went on a long time. So with that, we're going to go ahead. I'm going to close with some prayer. We're going to break into our groups. We're going to eat some chocolate. I get the good chocolate, you guys. I've, I've tried lots of chocolate over lots of studies, and this is by far everybody's favorite. So we just stick with it now. Eat some chocolate. Wake yourself up and get to know each other. Become comfortable with one another. And hopefully we are prepared now to jump into our homework when we leave here and have a framework so that we're ready to take in what we are going to study. Okay? So I'm going to go ahead and pray us out. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for your word and all of the richness that is within it, and I pray and hope that your spirit would lead us and guide us to really reach some of the depths of the meaning and some of the things that you have in this text. Lord, help us to not skim the surface, but help us to go deep and help us to be truly impacted. Let this change us on such a core level that it changes the way we see the way our lives, our purpose, how we live, and our experience of just leaning on you through hard times. So God... Be with us as we study. Give us perseverance to the end. And um, just let us encounter you in the study. It's in your name we pray. Amen.